nobody talks about Pharaoh's pants very often, but they're there. It was her most cherished jewel. I just get sort of um, rather excited by the fact that I'm on the very spot. It's the only one of Fabergé's eggs that looks like an egg. I love this fact they sort of stop for lunch halfway through the rebellion. He actually reaches down into the guy's throat and gets the diamond back. Welcome to History Gems, where today's episode is a dazzling affair. We're talking about Marie Antoinette and a scandal that became known as the Diamond Necklace Affair. Joining me to unpick this intriguing tale is historian, author and royal commentator, Dr. Carolyn Harris. Some of those Vigée Lebrun portraits where she's in her chemise dresses, the French public reacted very badly to that and thought it looked like the queen was posing in her underwear. This looked like a petticoat. It didn't look like the kind of attire that you would expect from a queen. What happens is, is um, Jeanne um, Delamotte Valois tells Cardinal Rohan that Marie Antoinette has a secret mission for him, that she wants the necklace, but she doesn't want her husband to know about this. She wants to go behind Louis XVI's back, and that therefore her, her supposed friend is going to act as an intermediary, and it's the Cardinal who will purchase the necklace, and then Jeanne will take the necklace to the Queen, and the Cardinal will be reimbursed. And of course, Jeanne's plan in the midst of this uh, was to get her hands on the necklace. The cardinal purchases it. He gives it to her to take to the queen. And then Jen and her husband can make off with the diamonds and sell them. Carolyn teaches at the University of Toronto and is the author of Magna Carta and its gifts to Canada, Queenship and Revolution in Early Modern Europe, and Raising Royalty, A Thousand Years of Royal Parenting. Carolyn is an expert in the history of European monarchy and as she's both written and teaches on Marie Antoinette, who better to talk about this extraordinary French queen? Welcome to History Gems, Carolyn. It's a huge pleasure to have you here chatting to me today. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Wonderful. And today we're going to be talking about Marie Antoinette, who is an iconic French queen, mm -hmm. of course, and a specific episode involving her. But before we come to that, perhaps you could just start by introducing us to Marie Antoinette and telling us a bit about her. Well, Marie Antoinette uh, was born the Archduchess Maria Antonia of Austria, and she was born in 1755, and she's the 15th of the 16 children of the Empress Maria Theresa of the Habsburg Empire, and Maria Theresa reigned up, up first with her husband, Francis I, as Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, and then uh, with her son, uh, Joseph II, as it had to be a man in that role of Holy Roman Emperor, even though it was Maria Theresa uh, who had inherited the Habsburg lands. Now, as the 15th of 16 children, Marie Antoinette, when she was young, didn't receive a lot of attention from her parents, particularly her mother, who was busy governing the empire. Her father drew up elaborate educational programs for his children, but the focus was more on his sons. Some of the older daughters, Maria Anna, Maria Christina, did pursue intellectual interests, but particularly the younger daughters, there wasn't a lot of focus 
on their intellectual development. They had a governess, uh, the Countess Brandis, uh, who was thought was basically doing their homework for them. And Marie Antoinette uh, reminisced about her childhood quite a bit once she arrived in France and her uh, Lady of the Bedchamber and reader, Ma uh, Madame Campan, who wrote one of the key sources about Marie Antoinette's life, recorded that Marie Antoinette was very nostalgic for her youth at the Schönbrunn Palace uh, outside of Vienna and Austria, lots of skating and sleigh riding and just lo lots of time outdoors and this very carefree early childhood. Um, she, uh, she respected and admired her mother, but she quite loved her father and was saddened uh, when he died as he was the one who was spending more time with the children while Maria Theresa was governing the empire and of course uh, had this very large family. And the Habsburg Empire, it's important to keep in mind, there's a lot of public ceremonial dining in public on key occasions, but there's also this private sphere. Um, and we see that even in some of the artwork that depicts uh, Maria Theresa and her husband and children um, on uh, um, St. Nicholas's Day where the children are receiving toys, they're dressed informally, they're, uh, they're enjoying time together as a family. And it was a real adjustment for Maria Antoinette when she married to suddenly be at Versailles where everything seemed to unfold in public and there wasn't this private space. So Marie Antoinette originally was not intended to be the future queen of France. She had many older sisters, some of whom contracted smallpox and due to either death or disfigurement were removed from the royal marriage market of the time. And so it became Maria Antonia, who was the one in line to marry Louis XV's grandson, the future uh, Louis XVI, who was just a couple of years older and herself. And then suddenly Maria Theresa is taking an interest in her youngest daughter, arranging for tutors and um, for her um, image to be specially styled for portraits. And the trouble that these tutors observed was that the young Archduchess, it wasn't simply that she hadn't been educated very well, but she'd never learned study habits, how to settle down and concentrate. And, and this was a challenge um, throughout her life, we see all these instances of her mother, Maria Theresa, who wrote to her constantly uh, when she was in France. It's another key source that we have, the correspondence between Marie Antoinette and Maria Theresa. And Maria Theresa encouraged her daughter to read widely, but it was not a habit that Marie Antoinette had, never, had ever taken up. So she had a reader read to her while she was having her hair done, uh, for example. But unlike Louis XVI, who did enjoy uh, some serious authors, and Marie Antoinette just hadn't had that experience of study. And for someone who'd had a very private childhood, not a lot of education, she's thrown into a very delicate diplomatic situation, as in her childhood there had been a diplomatic revolution that the, the Seven Years' War had seen France and Austria on the same side for the first time in decades. They had been on opposite sides in the War of the Austrian Succession, where Maria Theresa had asserted her claim to the Habsburg lands, and this Austrian-French enmity 
um, existed all the way back to the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648, um, when France had been concerned about the Austrian Habsburgs gaining too much power and had been involved in conflict with Austria then. So there was this absolute decades, if not centuries, of distrust between Austria and France. And then in Marie Antoinette's childhood, that changes. But the Austrian alliance was quite a controversial one. And Marie Antoinette, um, at the age of only 14, she sent to uh, France to be uh, married to the, the future Louis XVI, the heir to the throne, as his father had predeceased him. And, and, and this alliance was very controversial. And we see a lot of the wedding odes and poems. They don't talk about this as a marriage between two young people, a 16-year-old boy and a 14-year-old girl, but a marriage between France and Austria that after after decades of war that France and Austria had decided to go to bed and settle their differences. So these two very young people are in this very delicate diplomatic role. And it was not a role that Marie Antoinette had been adequately prepared for. And she faces a lot of challenges uh, from the uh, be beginning of her marriage. She marries the future Louis XVI in, in 1770. And so let's let's talk a bit about that. So when she becomes, when Marie Antoinette becomes queen, and presumably, I don't know, I'm thinking that even though she hadn't been raised with expectations of becoming queen of France, I'm thinking that uh, given where she'd come from, she would have become accustomed to living in luxury and to you know a certain lifestyle. So presumably i mean is this much of a transition for her in terms of when she becomes queen because is that taking luxury to a whole new level or you know is that something she would have become used to during her childhood well, it's interesting that Marie Antoinette's married at 14 in 1770, but she isn't queen until 1774. She has four years as the wife of the Dauphin, the heir to the throne, where uh, it's uh, Louis, the future Louis XVI's grandfather, Louis XV, who is on the throne. And Maria Theresa of Austria had emphasized her strong moral character, that she's a respectable married woman with 16 children who also runs this vast empire. And so something that the young Marie Antoinette found to be a great shock was traveling to Louis XV's court, Louis XV's queen, Marie Leszczynska, a Polish princess is deceased by this time. And so the most prominent woman at court is the king's mistress, Madame du Barry, who's not only a royal mistress, but from a lower class background that she had been a laundress. And Marie Antoinette cannot believe that she's expected to speak to this woman. And in fact, her mother, who this model of moral decorum, is urging her to speak to this woman because Marie Antoinette's job is to remain in favor with her grandfather-in-law. And, and, and Marie Antoinette is, is simply appalled and finally, under her mother's advice, agrees to say something innocuous, like there are a great many people at Versailles today. And that uh, breaks the ice with Madame du Barry. But but, but the, the young uh, Marie Antoinette simply finds it shocking that this lower class royal mistress has this prominent position at court. Now, Maria Theresa and Francis of Lorraine, their marriage had not been perfect on a personal level. Francis of Lorraine did have mistresses, but it was very discreet and it was not playing out at the court at Vienna, whereas Marie Antoinette found that in, at Versailles, the royal mistress almost had a... a um, 
a, a, a role, a public role of her own. So that was a big change. The other big change was how much of her life was unfolding in public. As I mentioned before, in Vienna, there certainly was a lot of public, luxurious, ceremonial, but there was also this private sphere where the family could simply enjoy being a family. And and, and so it was something that Marie Antoinette found very striking that from the moment she woke up at Versailles, you know, the, the levee to the moment when she went to bed, you know, the, the coucher, that she was surrounded by um, noble women who handed her her chemise, uh, who were involved in, in waiting on her. And also anyone who was decently dressed uh, was able to uh, visit Versailles in order to watch the royal family eat their meals. And in fact, there were stalls outside Versailles that rented the appropriate clothing. So even if you, you didn't, you weren't a man with a sword on your hip or a, or a woman with a the farthingale dress, you could rent the clothes in order to, to visit Versailles. So when we think of uh, Versailles uh, yeah, prior to the, the current pandemic at the height of the tourist season, crowded with people that perhaps isn't inaccurate compared to Marie Antoinette's experience. The idea of the public being very close at hand, there are all sorts of instances of Paris market women um, audibly wondering when Marie Antoinette's going to have a son in her hearing. And and, and the, this level of public life, the role of the royal mistress meant that even though Marie Antoinette was an Austrian archduchess, she was used to living in some degree of luxury. This is a very different court. And she writes home to her mother about getting dressed and going about her day uh, in front of the whole world or in front of everyone. It's like tout le monde. And and that this was something that that she found uh, very difficult, especially as her marriage encountered problems. She and the, the future Louis the Sixteenth got along fairly well on a day to day level. She actually joined him on some of his um, hunting expeditions, as she wanted to try to share some of his interests. So even though Maria Theresa in Austria disapproved, thinking her job was to become pregnant as soon as possible, and all that horseback riding might have an adverse effect that Marie Antoinette tries to make this marriage work, but the marriage is not consummated for a number of years. And there have been all sorts of speculation regarding whether the two young people simply felt awkward with all this public pressure, whether there was a physical condition, or if... Um, the future Louis the Sixteenth, influenced by his aunts, Louis the Fifteenth's daughters, who lived at court, um, simply um, did not approve of the Austrian alliance, and so didn't consummate the marriage in order to keep options open there. But it meant that Marie Antoinette dealt with all of this public scrutiny. Why hadn't she had children? Uh, was she going to be sent back to Austria? And having all of that play out in public and with her mother sending these constant letters, basically demanding to know um, why she didn't have children. Why was she staying up so late attending court entertainments and gambling instead of going to bed at the same time as her husband, as that might increase the, the possibility of there being an heir, that there's this relentless public pressure that's both coming from her mother in Vienna and being in this public role at the French court. And of course, that pressure only intensifies when she becomes queen upon Louis XV's death in 1774. And I mean, in terms of when she does become queen, um, what can we say about, I mean, thinking about 
her style, does her style, mm-hmm. does, does style, her style um, change? Do her tastes change? Do, mm-hmm. do fashions change much throughout the course of her queenship? Yes, we see a marked change, uh, and we can see this through the portraits of her her portrait artist, um, Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, who was a young woman, uh, close in age um, to Marie Antoinette, who painted her in the the, the late seventeen seventies and and um, into the seventeen eighties as well. And, and and Marie Antoinette um, liked to surround herself with women her own age. It was something she found very difficult about the court that the women um, who were highest in the level of precedence and therefore had the right to be in her company were often much older and she wanted to be surrounded by people her own age. So her portrait artist was a young woman close in age to herself and her very controversial close friends, um, the Princess de Lamballe, who becomes the superintendent of the Queen's household, another uh, young woman, uh, 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 Madame de Polignac, another um, close friend, and her reader, um, Jean Campan, um, she was also a, a, a contemporary of Marie Antoinette. She'd started out as reader to Louis XV's daughters. And then Marie Antoinette had recognized, oh, there was someone else her own age. Would she like to come and join her own court? So we so we have this fa- this fashionable circle. She liked to surround herself uh, by young women her own age uh, rather than these um, older, more traditional figures. And so her, her portrait artist, Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, uh, paints these portraits and the early ones are very formal. They depict uh, Marie Antoinette in full court dress um, uh, with the insignia of, of queenship. We have fleur de lis. We have you know, a bust of uh, uh, of the king, and it imitates some of the earlier portraits of Marie Leshinska, uh, Louis the Fifteenth's. Uh, queen who had been quite a popular figure because she was viewed as very virtuous and devout compared to Louis XV's mistresses, uh, Madame de Pompadour and Madame du Barry. But Louis XVI did not have mistresses who we know of. So Marie Antoinette was getting some of the public scrutiny that both queens and royal mistresses uh, received. And so in these early portraits, she portrays herself as very traditional queen of France. And and then we see as the reign progresses, she begins to personalize her fashion more and more. Um, she conferred with Rose Bertin, uh, and previously, royal milliners hadn't really had a public profile of their own. But Rose Beltin had these private meetings with Marie Antoinette and was able to advertise that she was a dressmaker to the queen. So she's been described as the first celebrity fashion designer and gets nicknamed the Minister of Fashion. Oh, wow. so, so she develops this rapport with Rose Beltin, uh, who helps personalize her fashions. And we see these examples, particularly those elaborate wigs that Marie Antoinette favor that have become very closely associated with her public image. And now it seems purely frivolous, these wigs with ships in them, uh, for example. But those the wigs with ships were to celebrate um, victories that took place when the French um, assisted the United States during the American Revolutionary Wars. And and another um, elaborate wig became known as the Pouf de Inoculation um, that had the staff of Asclepius. And it was intended to commemorate the vaccination of Louis XVI and his brothers um, against smallpox. Remember Marie Antoinette um, had lost um, sisters to smallpox. She had elder sisters who had either died or been disfigured by smallpox. So she publicly celebrated in her wig um, that, that this vaccination had taken place. So we see 
key examples, these very personalized fashions. And then the 1780s happen, and there's another big shift. And this is um, key to placing the diamond necklace scandal in context. And that is that that Marie Antoinette becomes interested in simpler fashions. She stops dressing in such an extravagant way, and there's a number of reasons for this. First, we have the fact that there had been critiques of her spending, even though court expenses are only 6% of the expenditure of the, the French state in terms of the budget. The American Revolutionary Wars costs a lot more, servicing the debt uh, costs a lot, but the extravagance of the court was beginning to attract negative commentary. And sometimes we think of Marie Antoinette as being in a kind of Versailles bubble and not being aware of this, but she wrote to her mother in the 1770s that there were satirical songs about her. So she was clearly aware of that. And there were official announcements by Louis the 16th by the 1780s that he and his wife are cutting their expenditures. There's clearly some efforts to address their public image. So there's that reason why her fashions get simpler. But there's another reason as well. And that is some of the ideas coming out of the French Enlightenment. Uh, we don't know if Marie Antoinette read the work of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, but some of his works were in her library. They may have been read aloud to her and certainly was part of the culture climate, she would have heard these ideas about the importance of living in a state of nature. And we see that in her child rearing. When her children uh, start to arrive, um, her daughter, Marie Therese, her, uh, her son, um, uh, Louis Joseph, uh, who's born in, in, in 1781, that she emphasizes um, in a letters home that, that she's um, dressing her children more simply. They're not being swaddled. They're being allowed to crawl around outside. And this is the best way for them to live. She's very confident that she wants to nurse her children herself, supervise uh, their upbringing. And this comes out in her fashions. We start seeing portraits where she is out in the garden in her little model hamlet that can still be visited at Versailles. And so she starts dressing in straw hats, these very simple muslin dresses without a lot of jewelry and and presenting herself this kind of shepherdess mode. And that's been widely mocked nowadays for the queen of France to have a little model village where she's living as a shepherdess. But she was responding to some of these enlightenment ideas about the importance of engaging with nature and living in a more natural fashion. And there were other upper-class women who behaved this way as well without getting the mockery as they were following the fashions. But for Marie Antoinette, it was viewed as highly unseemly that the Queen of France would behave this way, would retreat to her own comparatively private Petit Trianon, where she only entertains her own friends and not people uh, who have the precedence to appear at court and to dress so simply. So some of those Vigée Lebrun portraits where she's in her chemise dresses, the French public reacted very badly to that and thought it looked like the queen was posing in her underwear. This looked like a petticoat. It didn't look like the kind of attire that you would expect from a queen of France. So Marie Antoinette's fashions and and there's a very good book by Carolina Weber, um, Queen of Fashion, What Marie Antoinette Wore to the French Revolution, that looks at some of these controversies that that Marie Antoinette at first gets criticism for being too extravagant and then gets criticism for not 
dressing with the dignity expected of a queen of France. So Marie Antoinette's fashions are very contentious throughout Louis XVI's reign, even as she goes from very extravagant fashions to simpler ones and saving the, the, the more extravagant fashions for grand court occasions. So her fashion experiences this evolution. And because Rose Bertin continues to um, make uh, make dresses for the public and, and has these little, uh, little fashion dolls dressed up in the fashions of the era, it enables people in Paris to get a, a better sense of what's being worn at court. You don't even have to go to Versailles in the right clothing and observe what people are wearing, but you can see what the dress designer has in the window, that there's much more uh, public consumption and, and public awareness of what kinds of fashions exist at court. That's so interesting. Um, it is. It, yeah, it really is. And it sounds like she couldn't really win either way. She was no. <laughs> a poor lady. Um, so let's come to, you did touch upon this quickly, but let's, let's talk a bit now about the diamond necklace affair. Um, can mm-hmm. you give us a bit of background on the diamond necklace in question? What's so special about it? Well, the diamond necklace in question had originally been commissioned uh, by Louis XV for Madame du Barry during the last years of his life. But of course, it took the jeweler's time to accumulate the 647 diamonds and to put these diamonds together into the necklace. So by the time the 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 necklace was ready um, to be um, uh, purchased uh, by the king for the queen. Louis XV had passed away, and Louis XVI was now on the throne. And in the late 1770s, early 1780s, uh, France was very uh, financially involved in the the American Revolutionary Wars. Uh, Marie Antoinette reputedly commented that we need warships more than this necklace. That sounds out of character, but she didn't express a lot of enthusiasm. She knew what her reputation for extravagance was at this time. And going around in this giant necklace uh, would only reinforce these negative uh, perceptions. And Marie Antoinette had shown all these indications that she wanted to improve her image, that she wanted that she wanted, for instance, a simple uh, rose pattern in her bedroom rather than there being Austrian emblems there that emphasized her Austrian background. So Marie Antoinette was certainly aware that of her reputation. And as fashions changed in the 1780s, the necklace would have looked out of place. And the fact that the necklace had been commissioned for Madame du Barry, um, Marie Antoinette would have been very concerned about being perceived as being in the same category as a French royal mistress. So that was a problem as well. And the necklace itself wasn't particularly attractive or comfortable to wear. It was a sort of choker uh, with sort of ropes of diamonds hanging down in a kind of wreath. And there were two sashes that had to be attached to make sure the wearer didn't topple over uh, while wearing this necklace. So it was a wonderful statement of status and wealth, but it wasn't necessarily aesthetically pleasing or comfortable to wear. So Marie Antoinette had many reasons from her reputation to the fact that it had been commissioned for Madame du Barry to the fact that she may simply have not liked this piece, especially with the simpler fashions. So she declines the necklace and the jewelers kept 
pushing this matter. Um, they hoped that when um, she had a son, the Dauphin, that the king might buy it for her um, to uh, to commemorate that moment that there was finally an heir to the throne as they'd been married for 11 years by that time. Their daughter had been born previously, but women could not succeed um, to the French throne under the Salic laws. The jewelers hoped that that would be the moment, but they were declined once again, and they were pointed in the direction of other royal houses that perhaps the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire might be interested, that there were others uh, who might be able to pay for this. But the jewelers really in a bind, they had created this elaborate necklace, and there were very few people who could afford to buy it, and it was well known that they were trying to find a buyer. And this is how a a whole collection of colorful characters became involved in a scheme um, to, to make it seem as though Marie Antoinette wanted to buy the necklace secretly, and that would be a way of stealing the necklace. So a whole collection of people, only tangentially, if at all, collect, uh, connected to Marie Antoinette, uh, become involved in what's essentially a diamond heist in, in order to make it seem as though they're purchasing the necklace on Marie Antoinette's behalf. Uh, but are actually um, looking to keep the jewels for themselves. And I mean, so so what happens? Do they do they actually get hold of the necklace? Yes. Uh, so there's a whole oh. a whole group of people involved in this. The the, the main uh, figure was a, a woman named Jean uh, Delamotte de Valois, and she very proudly called herself, you know, the Comtesse de Valois, as she was descended from an illegitimate child of King Henri II, Henri II, who'd been married to Catherine de Medici, but had had uh, many children um, out of wedlock and. And so by the, t by the time um, Jean was born, uh, her family were, were very poor nobility. Her father was the Baron Saint-Rémy, and there was a crumbling chateau, but they didn't have any real income. The Baron Saint-Rémy had married his housekeeper. There had not been a, a dowry that had come in there. And the children grew up more or less... Uh, running wild and often begging on the street corner, you know, please give a coin to these children who sprang from the line of Valois. And local nobles were curious about this, these ragged children who were convinced they were related to the royal family. And so some local nobility looked into this and realized there actually was a connection. And so it was a sort of um, charitable effort um, by local nobility. It didn't look good to have these impoverished noble children begging on the street corner. And so um, Jeanne and her sisters and her brother uh, received a very, a very small stipend. She and her sisters were educated in a convent. Uh, Jeanne was um, was apprenticed to a mantua maker. So get royal fashion again, these makers of these um of these wide skirted dresses. And this was a way that, uh, that, that women who'd fallen on hard times could, could respectably support themselves. And later um, her brother entered the, uh, uh, entered the military and the family received a small pension. So if uh, uh, Jeanne de Lamotte Valois had been inclined to live quietly. This was better than begging on the street corner. She had a small income. She had a means of making a living, but she believed she was owed much more than that. She was descended from a royal line and she wanted to make her fortune. Um, she marries a military officer, uh, Nicholas Delamotte, and she arrives at Versailles and decides she's going to become a friend of Marie Antoinette. Marie Antoinette was befriending all sorts of young women who were not at the top of the, uh, of the noble um, 
hierarchy uh, just because she enjoyed their company. And so, and, and, and so Jeanne Delamotte-Valois, the, the Comtesse de Valois, she was calling herself, saw an opportunity that, that, that she could uh, be, become a more prominent figure at court. She even stages a fainting fit in Marie Antoinette's presence, trying to get the queen's attention. And it doesn't work. She doesn't get the queen's attention. She's run up uh, very uh, large debts to, to, um, create an impressive showing at court, but she begins telling other people that she has the ear of Marie Antoinette, that she's, that, that, oh, she spends time with the queen in secret and the queen did spend time at the Petit Trianon. So for those who were gullible, they could be taken in by this story. And another gullible figure who was looking to be taken in, uh, 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 who was looking to be in Marie Antoinette's good graces was Cardinal Rohan, who becomes the, the prominent fi uh, figure in this. Um, Jeanne Delamotte Valois becomes his mistress. He is, is trying to get into Marie Antoinette's good graces. He had opposed the Austrian alliance. He'd reputedly been rude to Empress Maria Theresa uh, while he was there. So Marie Antoinette wanted nothing to do with him, but he was from one of the most prominent families in France, a member of the Rohan family, tended to be the governess to the children of France, and in fact, a relative of his, Victoire uh, Rohan, the Princess de Gouminet, had been in this role uh, previously until she had left court due to her husband's gambling debts. And Marie Antoinette had put one of her friends in, the Duchess de Polignac, in this role as, as governess. So the Rohan family um, felt they were entitled to prominence at court. So we get these figures, Cardinal Rohan and uh, Jeanne Delamotte de Valois, who both feel they are entitled to Marie Antoinette's notice and favor, and they are not receiving that. And what happens is, is um, Jeanne um, Delamotte Valois tells Cardinal Rohan that Marie Antoinette has a secret mission for him, that she wants the necklace, but she doesn't want her husband to know about this. She wants to go behind Louis XVI's back, and that therefore her, her supposed friend is going to act as an intermediary, and it's the cardinal who will purchase the necklace, and then Jeanne will take the necklace to the queen, and the cardinal will be reimbursed. And of course, Jeanne's plan in the midst of this uh, was to get her hands on the necklace. The cardinal purchases it. He gives it to her to take to the queen, and then Jeanne and her husband can make off with the diamonds and sell them in Paris and London and and. Um, and make a lot of money of uh, doing that. Um, the Cardinal comes off as a very gullible figure in that he's taken in by this. And Jeanne even stages a supposed meeting with Marie Antoinette. She gets a shop girl and a prostitute, um, Nicole d'Oliva, who also invents a noble title for herself. She calls herself the Baron d'Oliva, who's dressed up as Marie Antoinette and agrees to meet the Cardinal under the cover of darkness. And and they exchange one, uh, one word of of, of you know what this means uh, what, while she presents him with a rose. And he thinks apparently he's met with the queen. There's a forger who becomes involved, who forges letters from Marie Antoinette and signs the Marie Antoinette de France, whereas Marie Antoinette never wrote of France at the end of her signature. And this is why Marie Antoinette, when all this came to light, found this completely ridiculous. How could the Cardinal have believed that? That's not what her signature looks like. And so some historians have speculated, was the Cardinal this gullible or was he in on this as well in the in, in on the jewel heist and was hoping to get some money from the Delamotts for his silence in all of this? There's a soothsayer named the Count de Caligo 
Gostro uh, from Italy, who's involved in some way as well, those ultimately acquitted. So you have all these, these people who don't actually have anything to do with Marie Antoinette, but who all feel that they're entitled to her notice. And Marie Antoinette does not become aware of what has happened until the jewelers come to her asking for payment. They have given the necklace to the cardinal, They the, and, and an installment plan of payments had been agreed upon, and then the, the necklace had gone um, to the, the Comte and Contesta de la Motte Valois, and they had never been paid. And so they were going to the king and queen. And it's another thing that these um, that, that these um, fraudulent people in the midst of this would have depended on is that royalty and aristocrats often didn't pay their debts for years at a time. It might have seemed like a, a lot of time could pass uh, before the jewelers would uh, would uh, make a complaint. But because of the amount of the cost of creating this necklace, they needed to be reimbursed. They go to the queen, and the queen says this is the first she has heard of any of this. And no, the cardinal was was not an authorized agent on her behalf. She doesn't even know who the, who the Comtesse de la Motte Valois was. Like, who, who are all these people who are claiming to act on her behalf? Now, this was a situation that probably should have been dealt with quietly. It was quite embarrassing that this had happened at the royal court. All these people claiming to be um, representing Marie Antoinette, having a Nicole D'Oliva dressing up as the queen and supposedly yeah. convincing the colonel. There's a lot here you'd think the royal couple would simply want to keep quiet. Yeah. Um, but, what en but what ends up happening is in 1785, what happens is Louis the 16th orders the arrest of Cardinal Rohan. This isn't simply a matter of theft, but it's a matter of like les majestés at this point of disrespect to the Royal family that he became involved in this conspiracy. So Cardinal Rohan and his associates, you know, that the Delamotes are, are, are placed on trial. And this becomes a big public scandal at a time when, and Sarah Mazza has, has written about this when trial briefs were becoming a particular popular kind of um, entertainment um, that the literate population in Paris would buy trial briefs of high profile trials. And so there's all this fascination with these, these interesting characters who all, uh, who all were supposedly connected with Marie Antoinette in some way, who become involved in this diamond necklace scandal. So what could have been something that was settled quietly at court and the, um, <clears throat> the people involved quietly, um, quietly punished, even perhaps the jewelers given some kind of reimbursement just to get this problem to go away. Instead, it becomes a big public scandal that plays out in the Paris parlements, and it provokes a lot of very public discussions of Marie Antoinette's reputation. So, okay, so that's a really good point. So I, that's what I was going to ask is what effect does the scandal have on Marie Antoinette's um, uh, well, what effect does it have on her personally and what effect does it have on her reputation? Well, personally, this is very distressing. She writes to her brother, uh, Joseph II. Maria Therese has passed away by this time, so we don't have as many documents as she didn't write to her brother as often as she did uh, her mother. But she's shocked that anyone could believe she was involved in this. That's clearly not her signature. Members of the French royal family did not sign their names de France. So she's at first quite optimistic that it's going to be obvious that she had nothing to do with this. 
But the trouble is the defense put forward by Cardinal Rohan. Uh, he's arguing he's been duped. It's the um, the, the Delamont Valois couple who, who who deserve all of the punishment. That he is simply a dupe. But for him to put forward that he has been defrauded in this way, that means the court would have to agree that it was reasonable that Marie Antoinette would go behind her husband's back to buy a valuable necklace that her husband did not purchase for her, would have to agree that it was reasonable that she would befriend someone like the, the Comtesse de Lamotte Valois, uh, who has no standing of, at court, and would agree that it was reasonable that she would meet the cardinal under the cover of darkness and present him with a rose and enter into a secret correspondence. So the cardinal's entire defense was that he sh was that he didn't suspect anything was amiss when these events took place, and 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 there were also people who looked at this and perhaps agreed that Marie Antoinette wasn't directly involved, but thought that perhaps she sat back and let this all happen in order to get the cardinal discredited because he had insulted her mother. So the fact that this trial was happening was perhaps a way of settling personal scores against the cardinal. So it's a disaster when the cardinal is acquitted by the Paris parlements. It's agreed that he has been been duped, that that that, that, that he had no idea what was happening, because that is a, a, a court of law agreeing that it's reasonable to assume that Marie Antoinette would have behaved in that way, that the queen was indistinguishable from some shop girl who'd been dressed up um, to meet the, the cardinal under the cover of darkness. And it shows the decline of Marie Antoinette's reputation that it was a defense that, oh, Marie Antoinette might have wanted that necklace behind her husband's back. She might have met with the cardinal um, without her husband's knowledge. And all of this draws upon rumors about Marie Antoinette. There were rumors that she was unfaithful to her husband, that she had this private sphere at the Petit Trianon, that she, uh, that, that she was uh, staying up all night. And in fact, Marie Antoinette did like to have a private sphere where she could entertain her friends. And she did like to stay up late in order to see the sunrise. And, and she and, and she liked to um, go sleigh riding. She introduced some of the pastimes that had existed in Austria in her childhood, some of these more informal ways of passing the time. But a lot of this was interpreted as her having this whole nocturnal social life, to say the very least, that had nothing to do uh, with her husband. So the cardinal being acquitted um, was a disaster. The Delamots um, are, uh, are punished. Uh, they're published as well, um, that, that various accounts of the the trial uh, and their testimony uh, do end up being made uh, public um, to to a wider audience, and the Comtesse de Lamont eventually uh, writes her memoirs. But but she is uh, branded with a V for valuse or a robber, and is is placed in prison. She eventually escapes. Um, her husband is sentenced to be a galley slave, and once again manages to have this um, th this mitigated. So they do manage to eventually travel abroad where they continue to present themselves as people who were uh, who were wronged uh, by Marie Antoinette. So it's a real disaster that the cardinal is acquitted. Um, the young woman, the Nicole Doliva, who dressed up as Marie Antoinette, she gets acquitted as well. The soothsayer, the Comte de Caligostro, and only the Delamotts are are punished as the jewel 
the jewel thieves. Um, but the fact that they managed to escape and continue to put their own views forward means that this is a scandal that doesn't go away. It goes beyond the sentences of who is convicted and, um, and who's acquitted in 1786. And we see Marie Antoinette trying to rehabilitate her reputation, finding this all very unfair, that she had nothing to do with this jewel heist. And yet the trial, instead of being about the theft of the jewels, ended up being about Marie Antoinette's reputation. So we see new Vigée Lebrun portraits where she commissions a portrait of herself uh, with her children, with Marie Therese, Louis Joseph, Louis Charles, and an empty cradle as her daughter Sophie um, had died in infancy. And Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun in her own memoirs describes exhibiting this portrait and it not being well received. People are snickering or putting up notes that say Madame Deficit and not viewing Marie Antoinette in a sympathetic light as a bereaved mother who's lost her baby and is surrounded by her three surviving children. But as this extravagant figure who's exerting undue political influence um, at, at court. So Marie Antoinette has a very hard time recovering from this, even though she's not the one on trial. It ends up being a trial about her reputation. And do you think then it could could it be said that the scandal caused by this affair contributes towards the beginning of the French Revolution or is it completely separate? I think certainly we see an example of the Queen's reputation being discredited and that serving as a means to delegitimize the monarchy. We often see that both the English Civil Wars and the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution as well, that rather than revolutionary activity beginning with direct attacks on the king, you see comments about evil advisors that are surrounding the king or members of the king's family. And certainly this diamond necklace scandal brought to light that there were a lot of questionable characters hanging around Versailles at the very least. And the idea that Louis XVI didn't have control over his family, if it was believable that the queen was sneaking out in the middle of the night um, to, to, to um, secretly buy necklaces and meet with Cardinal Rohan, even if the queen hadn't done that in this instance and it had been someone impersonating her, if it was realistic to believe that that could happen, that suggested Louis XVI couldn't manage his family. And the family's viewed as a microcosm of the state. If the king could not manage his family, could he manage the wider kingdom? So we see an effect on Louis XVI's reputation. Um, although it's the cardinal who is on trial presenting himself as having been uh, as having been misled by the Delamotte Valois, the bigger debate becomes, is it Louis XVI um, who's being manipulated by Marie Antoinette and has no idea what she's doing, who she's socializing with, or, uh, or, or what she's spending? So the king's reputation is undermined as well. So when the Estate Generale are called in, in 1789, I mean, in order to address the financial problems of the monarchy, as the, the French state was almost bankrupt, having uh, spent so much on the American Revolutionary Wars and large debts have been run up, um, the various estates, the clergy, the nobility, and the third estate, which is everyone else, were not simply interested in discussing finances, but were interested in discussing how France was governed. So I think what comes out of the diamond necklace scandal is real concerns about 
the royal family, the court at Versailles, the nature of French government, and certainly prominent people years later looked back on this moment as the first step towards Marie Antoinette eventually being placed on trial by the Revolutionary Tribunal and executed. Napoleon Bonaparte certainly thought the diamond necklace scandal was this first step towards Marie Antoinette herself being prosecuted during the French Revolution, even though she's a royal consort and not the uh, and, and not the monarch herself, that she is a political figure uh, who attracts this enormous amount of controversy and and eventually is is guillotined in 1793. It's such an extraordinary story, it really is. And um, yes, it's full of colorful characters, yeah. and it's inspired. Um, a novel by Alexander Dumas, a film starring um, Hilary Swank as oh, the yeah. Comtesse de la Motte Valois. There have been films, plays, novels. Uh, there was a, a Jean Plady novel, The Queen of Diamonds, yeah. uh, simply because we have th this opulent royal court, this jewel heist, and all of these uh, questionable characters who are not part of the inner circle. And what they have in common is they would like to be part of Marie Antoinette's inner circle. And at first that's the goal. And then it becomes uh, this this attempt um, to steal this diamond necklace. There's so many different layers to this story and it taking place just before the outbreak of the French Revolution. So it's continued to inspire novelists and playwrights and filmmakers to the present day. Incredible. And just very finally, I would just like to ask, do we know what actually happened to the necklace? The necklace was uh, broken apart. Certainly, um, the, the Delamotte Valois couple wanted to get rid of those diamonds as quickly as possible. And they um, were not able, of course, to sell the entire necklace. That would make clear what was happening. So the necklace was broken apart. And one of the reasons they were traced to this was individual diamonds popping up for sale in both London and Paris. They were traveling back and forth and trying to get rid of, of, of some of the, the diamonds. Uh, some may have come into um, collections of various members of the, the British aristocracy, uh, that the Duke of Sutherland was thought to have uh, some of these diamonds. But because the necklace was broken down, we do not know where all of the various diamonds uh, ended up. But certainly the fact that there were suddenly all these diamonds on the market uh, helped bring this scandal to light, that it was clear that the necklace had not gone to Marie Antoinette, but instead was being sold off piece piecemeal by the jewel thieves. So all of these jewels are probably out there somewhere, the stones. <laughs> Gosh, Carolyn, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. And just very, very finally, for those listeners who are intrigued by, um, by the story that you've just told and want to find out more about you and your work, where can they find you? Uh, well, my website is royalhistorian.com and my book on Marie Antoinette, I'm comparing her to Henrietta Maria, the queen to Charles I, is Queenship and Revolution in Early Modern Europe, Henrietta Maria and Marie Antoinette. And it discusses how these two queens were perceived as wives, mothers, heads of royal households. So the diamond necklace scandal and how it was perceived uh, by the public at that time is one of the themes 
themes that comes out in the book. And the, and the book also compares the impeachment in absentia of Henrietta Maria in 1643 with the trial and execution of Marie Antoinette. So it looks at these cases of how discrediting the queen was a means of discrediting the monarchy going into the English civil wars and the French Revolution. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. That's been just brilliant. And Thank I've you. learned so much. Honestly, I'm, I'm just fascinated. <laughs> I just felt like we could have talked and talked yes. and talked about it. There are this. many different it's facets amazing. to this story. And as I say, we haven't even quite gotten to the French Revolution yet and everything that un no. unfolds there. So, so, so Marie Antoinette in her short life, I mean, she was only uh, 37 when she was guillotined, that, that, that experienced a great deal of public scrutiny and public criticism in this role as Queen of France, everything from her fashions to her Austrian origins to her marriage and, and, and how the, the royal nurseries were governed. Absolutely incredible. I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm so fascinated. I find Marie Antoinette just the most extraordinary character. And, yes. Yeah, really interesting. I've got your book actually as well. Ooh, wonderful. So I do, yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to today's episode and we'll be uploading images of Marie Antoinette onto our social media pages at History Gems on both Instagram and Twitter. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to press subscribe, leave us a rating and a review and join us for the next episode of History Gems.